Welcome in, folks. My guest today is Tom Kelly. Tom was the voice of the ski team for over 30 years running their public relations department. During Tom's time with the ski team, the athletes would get over 100 Olympic medals and 50 more at world championship events. Tom was actually in the finish area for 75 of those Olympic medals. With the athlete's success and Tom's fantastic storytelling and hard work, he was able to create a much bigger and broader audience for U.S. ski and snowboard, not only in the U.S., but across the globe. For all of Tom's hard work and dedication, he is now a member of the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. I hope you enjoy Tom's journey of failures and successes so far. How we doing, Tom? How we doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Uh, good to be on with you, Bobby. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Well, you've been do, uh, doing a good job with this, and I've enjoyed listening to some of your early episodes, and it's an honor to be in the arena, so to speak. Well, I uh, certainly appreciate it. Now, for a lot of people out there that don't know Tom Kelly, you uh, truly are the man, the myth, the legend when it comes to uh, all things uh, winter sports and skiing, things of that nature. I mean, 30 years with the U.S. ski team. You are uh, in a very exclusive uh, club. You are a member of the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. There's only 434 of those, so that's a, a lofty club to be a part of. And, you know, really sounds like it comes from an innocent beginning, just uh, growing up in Wisconsin and, and watching, watching an Olympics when you're, what, six, seven years old? Yeah, you know, I like the way you phrase that. It came from an innocent beginning, and I think that's the way it starts for everybody. And I, I like to tell uh, people that I'm mentoring or encounter that if you have a dream or a passion, just put it in your mind and just keep stepping, stoning your way up there. It doesn't happen overnight. And for me, uh, as you said, I was seven years old, had never heard of skiing, had never heard of the Olympics. Mom put me on the couch because she had to go to the store and she said, don't move, stay right there. And she put the Olympics on television from Squaw Valley. And I dutifully stayed on the couch. I watched the Olympics. It was the women's downhill. And I watched uh, uh, Penny Patu win the silver medal for the U.S. And I was just hooked on skiing. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to go about it. I wouldn't actually ski until I was 18 years old. But from that moment, when I was seven years old, I knew that this is something I wanted to be involved with. And let's just see how it works out. So from seven years old, what was that main kind of lasting impact? Because it really, truly uh, kind of paved your career. What, what was that thought? What's going through your mind when you're seven years old? What is it about that, the Olympic Games? It was a variety of things. First of all, it was mountains. It, I'd never seen them. It was snow. It was speed. Uh, it was independence and freedom. It was all of those things that those of us who ski love. This is my 50th year skiing this year. Uh, but I didn't start till I was till I was 18. But it was all of those things, and I saw it on television. Television was relatively new at that point, so it was just all those things that came together to form this mental picture for me that I kept chasing through the years. So when 18, where, where's the first uh, ski area you end up going to? <laughs> Al Al Alpine Valley, Wisconsin, or vertical? I don't know. 200 feet, maybe 300 feet, not much. And I went over Thanksgiving, uh, thought it was great. I think they had one little swath of snow open as they tend to do that time of year. Uh, and then I went back over Christmas and that was insane. And I remember waiting in line like 45 minutes to an hour to go up and ski down this 300 foot hill. But I just absolutely loved it. It's it stuck with me right away. And I was in college at the time and I just started to pursue it every chance I could get. Ended up skiing mostly at Cascade Mountain, 
which is north of Madison, Wisconsin, about a half hour. And I could do classes in the morning and I could be up there by 1230 and get some runs in. And that was just a blast for me. You know, I, I, I loved it. Yeah, that's so how did you kind of think that you would work your way more into the ski world? I mean, you just want to spend as much time as possible up there. But how does that how do you kind of find your way at a young age? Well, you you never I don't think you ever really know exactly where you're going to land. And I can't say that I had any kind of a plan, but I knew that I liked skiing. So <clears throat> I tried to figure out how can I get more involved in this? And when I was about probably 12 or 13, I became involved in photography, which is still a passion of mine. So I started looking for ways to combine photography with skiing. We had a ski jump in Madison. It's called the Blackhawk Ski Club, still there today. And we used to go out there in January. We'd sit in the car for the tournament. We'd beep our horn for the long rides. And it was a great family experience. So I started to look for ways to parlay my interest in photography with skiing. And I started to photograph the ski jumpers. And before long in high school, I became the photographer for the U.S. ski jumping team, which trained there. And I was taking pictures for the ski jumps and taking pictures for ski racing magazines. So I started to get into it that way. And then when I got into college, I was a journalist. I was a photographer for a local community newspaper and also a student newspaper uh, I was a sports editor of a community weekly, and I started to do PR work on the side for an agency in Madison, and one of their clients was a ski area in northern Wisconsin called Telemark. And Telemark was a 370-foot alpine hill. It opened in 1947, pretty, pretty small place. But in the early 70s, Telemark got involved in cross-country skiing in a really big way. People probably know the American Berkebiner cross-country race, and that uh, was it was at Telemark, uh, run between the towns of Hayward and Cable in northern Wisconsin. So I started doing PR work for them, writing news releases, and pretty soon I was going up there and doing photography. And then all of a sudden, the U.S. cross-country team was training up there. So I got involved with them. I got involved with the World Cup, and before long, I had a job up there. And that was kind of my my next big foot in the door in terms of getting involved in organized skiing, but it was through cross-country. How, how much of a learning experience was that for, did it take for you kind of getting involved with that? Well, life is a learning experience. So I, 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 there was nothing different about that than anything else I've ever done. But I was not a cross-country skier. I was not passionate about it. I did cross-country ski. I don't really cross-country ski anymore. But, but I, I wasn't that knowledgeable about it. But but. I was a journalist, so my background as a journalist taught me to ask questions and to formulate stories, and that's what I did. I just learned about it, and, and I was fortunate along the way. You know, everybody can, I guess you could say you're lucky, but you, you make your luck happen. I was in the right place at the right time, but I was able to do things at those times to really further my career. So I was at the Olympic trials in 1976 that sent Bill Koch to the Olympics in Innsbruck, where he won the first ever medal for the U.S. in cross-country skiing. So I was able to attach a little bit to the sport through that and become connected to it. And I think it's being able to make connections and to make those connections not just temporary, but to continue them through time. You know, Bobby, it's a small world. And the thing I tell everybody is always pay attention to your contacts that you make because someday they'll come back to help you, but you need to maintain them. Sure. I think that's, uh, 
definitely some true words, right? When you're going through, you're a little bit younger, you kind of uh, take everything a little bit for, for granted and you never know which, which paths may open up for you kind of later up and later on in life, right? Yeah. And, and you know, I, I look back now and I have contacts that I made back in the 70s that I still call on today. I may call on them in a different way. I may know their, their children, but those contacts that I made in the 70s and 80s, they came back uh, uh, to help me over time. So keep that Rolodex uh, and keep it updated because those people will help you for a lifetime once they've met you. Sure, yeah, no, I mean, I remember I was probably 14 or 15, just a little young skier in Park City when it was you and uh, Paul Robbins writing, yeah. doing a write-up uh, in Park City Magazine that I, got to, that I got to be in. And that was, yeah, I mean, I remember that was a huge experience for me personally, kind of growing up and yeah. you know, trying to aspire and to achieve. And here you have someone that's, uh, you know, head of uh, PR for the U.S. ski team coming in and calling you on the phone and asking you a couple questions about skiing in Park City. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, Paul was an interesting character, and I'm glad you had an opportunity to meet him. You oh, know, yeah. we, we introduced him to skiing at Telemark, and it's kind of a funny story, but I had this eccentric boss at Telemark. His name was Tony Wise, an amazing visionary. And honestly, God, this is a true story, but Tony read a news release one day, and I think the news release was probably from Sugarbush in Vermont. And he read a news release and he really liked the way the news release sounded. So he called the guy's name who was on the news release and said, I want to give you a job. And the guy said, well, listen, I didn't write that. That was one of my freelancers. Call this guy Paul Robbins. So my boss called Paul Robbins, offered him a job right there on the spot because he liked the way that news release sounded. Well, Paul wasn't about to take the job, but he did come out. We forged a connection and, and, a, and, and one that uh, you know stayed with us for, for decades until his passing uh, about 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, but Paul was an amazing character, and, and he did have that way of telling stories, and, and he ingratiated himself to the athletes. I mean, you remember him, Bobby, when you were a kid, and you got yeah. to meet that guy, and, and he was pretty amazing with how he made the athletes feel. He didn't just tell their story, but he told that story with real personal passion. Absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the things, uh, talk to so many different ski team athletes that you yourself have had to deal with in over 30 years, 10 Olympics, all, the, all those things. And uh, they always uh, talk about the love for TK as you <laughs> and just how, how genuine and authentic you are. And, and how much do you think that's kind of helped in, in your career, just being, just ultimately being yourself but how, I mean, it's yeah. really led to such a great rapport with, with all the athletes. Yeah, you know, you used a word there, Bobby, that has, uh, I never really thought much about until I retired from the team two years ago. And the word is authentic. And, you know, in the PR business, it's what I call the gray zone. You know, you're making blue look like green. And, and, and oftentimes in the PR business, you need to spin things and you need to tell things in a different way. You don't you don't tell things that are not true, but you tell things in a particular way. And when I was leaving the team a couple of years ago, you know, I was humbled by some of the accolades that I was getting, but there was this constant theme that I started hearing with the word authentic and authenticity. And I remember one day I took one of my staff members aside and talked to her and I said, help me better understand this because that's not a word that I've ever thought about. And, and it was really eye-opening to me as she explained her experience in working with me for four years 
and how she saw that authenticity. I honestly had never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and th- that's a, that, that's a big difference, but you know, it's uh, uh, I appreciate the fact that people do think that I was authentic. That means a lot to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the growth and all that through, through those years is pretty, pretty incredible. And, uh, you know, I always remember all the times I spent with you and everything else, you were nothing but the, uh, nicest, most, most genuine person, always, uh, caring about the athletes. And, you know, it's remarkable over your career, you were in the finish area for team USA athletes for 75 Olympic medals. That is quite impressive. <laughs> yeah, you know, somebody, uh, when, when I was leaving two years ago, somebody asked me that question, and I honestly didn't know. So I had to go look it up and, and, and really uh, do some research, and I was kind of astounded uh, when, when I added up that number, and it was 75, and those are just the medals that I was actually there for. Yeah. So, I mean, as an example, I was not there when Johnny Mosley won his gold medal in Nagano because mm-hmm. that day I was uh, over watching Peekaboo Street win her gold medal. Uh, so <laughs> it was it was pretty pretty fun to have had that experience. No, it's it's absolutely amazing, and you've been around such such success with all those athletes and and yourself and your kind of your personal career. What was it like when you start to come in and start to work with the ski team? Because you go to your first Olympics in Lake Placid in mm-hmm. 1980. Yep. And how do you make your way to the U.S. team? So my first Olympics in 1980, I served two roles there. And I only was there for the first half of the games because we had our big Berkebiner race back in Wisconsin. But I was the assistant press chief for cross country. So I worked for the organizing committee. And I was also a stadium announcer working together with my best friend, Peter Graves, calling the cross country events. Uh, and, and the Olympics were much smaller back then than they are today. And it was amazing. If, if For those of you who have been to Lake Placid, you know it as this teeny little town. Yes, it really did hold the Olympics. And uh, it was astounding to see how it actually worked. Uh, so I had those roles. And then in 1984 with the Olympics in Sarajevo, I had opportunities to go, but it, it hadn't risen up high enough on my radar yet, and I didn't go. And that's probably one of my few regrets is that I didn't find my way to Sarajevo because that was such an historic games. Uh, I didn't go to Calgary either. That's I kind of regret that a little bit, although that was not a good Olympics for Team USA. Um, but then uh, I, I found my way from the cross-country world at Telemark, Uh, to my own travel company called Worldwide Nordic USA. Peter Graves and I had a company where we took cross-country skiers literally around the world. And this really introduced me to international uh, uh, travel. You know, I I listened to uh, uh, the podcast you had with uh, Doug Wren Mm -hmm. um, a week or so ago. And it was really interesting to hear his story, you know, coming back from a Mormon mission. And uh, he didn't like the fact he was sitting in the the back of the plane. So he wanted to figure out how can I get up to business class and first class. So he decided to get into the travel business. So we did that for a few years. And then there was an opportunity to go to then the U.S. Ski Association in Colorado Springs. And I took a job as the assistant national uh, Nordic director. I worked for a guy by the name of Lee Todd. And I was actually hired by Howard Peterson, who many of you may know. He was the head at uh, Soldier Hollow for many, many years, uh, still lives in Heber. And And uh, that got me in the door. And I did that for two years working in Colorado Springs. And then in May of uh, 
let's see, 1998, the or 88, the organization moved from Colorado Springs to Park City. The ski team had been here in Park City. U.S. Ski Association at the time was separate. The two of them merged and came here to Park City. So that's what brought me here. And when we came here, I went to Howard and I said, listen, I love what I'm doing in Nordic, but really my heart is in communications and PR. And if we're going to make this move, I want to take over the PR program. So that's how I took over as spokesperson. That was in 1988. And I stayed in that role for 30 years and left uh, two years ago in 2018. Now, to go back a little bit towards the uh, worldwide Nordic USA traveling, what experience is is that like because i mean travels a lot different back then and and how does that come about of of making people do some not making but uh taking them on this journey to do nordic around the world well it was fascinating because you didn't travel like you did today everything was regulated airfares were government controlled uh the places that we were going for these races no one had ever ever heard of it that's one of the reasons peter and i started this company is because it was difficult for skiers, for cross-country skiers to go to these, what we called citizen races as a part of what was then and still is the World Lopet series. And this was a series of, at the time, eight races around the world. And the objective was average people like you and I to go and ski those events. But they were in tiny little places that travel agents knew nothing about. So we started this company to specialize in this. And and there was a great interest in doing this. The hardest thing for me in that business is I grew up in a middle-class family in Wisconsin. I knew nothing about travel. I knew nothing about people who would spend this kind of money on yeah. these trips. And I remember trying to save my clients $10 on airfare, not understanding that they didn't care about the $10. They wanted this because of what I brought to them. And I learned that through that experience. Unfortunately, we survived it, mm -hmm. had great experiences. Probably one of the most notable trips that I did is for, uh, there were two years, uh, I think it was 1984 and 85, where I took a group of Americans to Murmansk, uh, then in the Soviet Union. Murmansk is a, a city 500 miles above the uh, Arctic Circle. And it was a very pivotal uh, uh, a harbor in World War II. And the U.S. Merchant Marine would provide lifeline supplies to uh, what was then Russia uh, through the port at Murmansk. But in the Soviet Union era, no one was allowed up there. We were the first group of Americans to really set foot in Murmansk since World War II. And we went, I think, one year with about 10 and the next year with 15 cross-country skiers. And it was quite a remarkable experience to get deep into the culture of, of this community, high up in uh, uh, frozen Lapland, essentially. That had to be quite eye-opening. That was really eye-opening. We were constantly under the watch of our tourist guide, who was uh, clearly uh, connected with the government. When we were in the cities of uh, Moscow and uh, Leningrad at the time, we really had no freedom of movement. When we were in Murmansk, Things were a little bit looser. We weren't supposed to connect with the locals, but we all did. We went to homes. Uh, when we left, we left all of our ski gear with them just to 
thank them for the experience. And it, it was a remarkable time. And that was something that took me several years of work to do uh, with the consulate, uh, with the embassy in New York. But we ultimately got that permission. And uh, it was a great experience. You know, it's, it's interesting on that trip for any of our cross-country fans uh, who know Simi Hamilton, who's been one of the stars of the U.S. cross-country team for the last few years. His parents were on uh, one of those trips with me. And that's how I got to know them uh, even before he was born. Uh, yeah. So it was, a, it was a great experience. And I, I, I still look back on that with a lot of pride that we made this opportunity happen. And in essence, we were ambassadors of sort to those people. And in, in the era of the Cold War, this was a, a bit of a respite. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's got to take some, some real creativity and kind of some fearlessness to be able to go kind of, especially at that time, into the, into the great beyond. Maybe yeah. Too, to be like, oh, we'll, we'll figure it out. It'll, it'll, it'll all work out for us. <laughs> you know, I think the fearlessness is a pretty important component. Um, I've always been a risk taker and always figure out a, a way to get through. And uh, there was a lot of risk in what we were doing with that trip. Uh, I mean, not serious risk of losing lives, but uh, the, the, it, was a, it was a real challenge to, to uh, put that, that whole thing together. And it was very successful. So do you think that that kind of risk uh, that risk takeness that you uh, talk about is that where, where does that stem from? Where's that kind of drive and to succeed come from for you? I don't know. That's really a, a, a good question. It does not come from my parents. Uh, they were relatively conservative. Uh, it probably comes from Tony Wise, who I work with at Telemark. He was a complete risk taker and, you know, in the end he went, he went bankrupt, but uh, he, he was one of those, uh, you, know, you can't accomplish something if you don't want to take some risks. You know, I look at that with athletes too. I mean, Nikki Stone is a, a real poster child for that. I don't know if people remember Nikki, but she's the 1998 gold medalist in freestyle aerial skiing. Uh, medal that she and Eric Burgess won, each won gold medals in, in Nagano on the same day. But uh, three years earlier, she had a back injury and she went to a doctor and the doctor said, well, I'm sorry, Nikki, you're never going to ski again. So she went and found another doctor and found another doctor. And eventually she found someone who said, listen, uh, there's some risk involved, Nikki, but if you did this, do this kind of uh, strength and conditioning work that we can protect the back and, you know, yeah, you definitely have some risk, but this will allow you to achieve your goal. And, you know, she was not acting in a dangerous uh, or a reckless manner, but she was taking some risks, but they were calculated risks. And, and in her case, it, it ended up with a gold medal around her neck three years later. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great story. And it's great to hear you kind of talk. I mean, you have, uh, what, 75 or more uh, just from, <laughs> a few. that you were at the bottom for, right? Not including world yeah. championships or World Cup overall titles. And so you certainly have a uh, quite the treasure chest of, of those experiences. I mean, what, what would you say are, are some of those things that you see in the athletes, those kind of successful traits that, that they have? I mean, is there, a, you know, one, two, three that you can kind of off the top of your head or like that that's what's going to make you successful in your future? You know, it, it's hard for me to put them into a rank or just say three, but I'll throw out a few things. I mean, certainly the, uh, the ability to take risks uh, uh, is, is paramount, and there's myriad examples of, of, of that. Perseverance is another one. I mean, I, I look at Peekaboo Street. You know, there, there's somebody who had uh, just a, quite a remarkable career. She was hurt a lot, though. And, and she, I mean, if you go and look at the actual time she was on snow in her career, I mean, it was really pretty small, but she got the most out of it. But she just had perseverance 
perseverance. She just kept picking it up and, and coming back. Uh, uh, this is another 1998 story from Nagano, but her, she won her gold medal there. And she should never have won that gold medal. And she knows it. And, but she won it out of perseverance and risk-taking. But she'd come back from a devastating knee injury. And she had only been back on snow. I think it was July 6th, uh, 1997. So she really only had maybe six or seven months on snow. Had not had a good season at all. She went into the Olympics in Nagano. The downhill was the only event that she was expected to do well in. It was the opening event. It got postponed bone. So it wasn't going to happen for another week. And then it was the super G and she'd never won a super G in her life. She'd never won one after that. But on that particular day, the course set was very open and very fast. And she and her coach, Hervik Dempscher, still lives here in Park City. Uh, they made a decision that morning to go with downhill skis and that allowed her to win that gold medal by a hundredth of a second. I was just back there in February this year and, and went back up on the course and it was fun to rekindle the memories of, of that day. But you know, perseverance, risk-taking, working together as a team, yeah. And the, the, uh, Hervig and I talked about this uh, a short time ago. The teamwork that went on that day between the coach, between the wax technician, between the athlete, they all came together. You cannot do it alone. And that's something that I really learned from Bill Marolt, who was the CEO of the U.S. ski team from uh, 1996 until his retirement in 2014. And he taught us the importance of team and working together and setting a goal. We set that goal, that vision of being best in the world in Olympic skiing and snowboarding. And we were far from it. When we set that vision in 1997, we were a laughingstock in many sports. But we set that vision and we kept at it. And lo and behold, 13 years later in 2010, we did become best in the world, winning 21 medals at Vancouver. And, and that was uh, an experience that I will never forget, being a part of that and setting a vision, working together as a team to accomplish that goal. That's really inter interesting to, to cause I mean, I grew up with best, I mean, that's essentially mm -hmm. what I grew up with, right? Best in the world. Yeah. And also, so what was the team mentality uh, like earlier? coming in 90 and stuff like it was just was it more individual was it more about the individual rather than the team mentality of creating this kind of culture to make everyone succeed well when i when i started with the team in 1998 uh, 1988 uh the culture had really deteriorated the the team uh, particularly on the alpine side and remember at that time there was only alpine jumping nordic combining cross country freestyle snowboarding didn't exist but the team was not in a good place in the late 80s. I mean, it was really not a good situation. The organization was fairly destitute, uh, was not well managed. So it took some time to put that back together. Howard Peterson was really the architect of bringing that back together in the early 90s. And then there was some tough sledding in the uh, kind of the period around 92, 93, and it really didn't start to come back on track until Bill Merolt came in 96. And then moving forward from there, the management structure was really much better, much more focused than it ever had been before. 
but it but it rubs off on the athletic programs. I, I, I this is going back a little bit further in time, but I'm doing a story right now on Andy Mill, and I don't know if people remember Andy, but he was a top downhiller from the '70s, and he uh, ultimately married Chris Evert, and uh, now Andy is a world class tarpon fisherman, lives uh, houses in Aspen and down in Florida. But we were talking about the state of the the team in the the '70s, and it was really uh, not well structured. There was not much support. They didn't know if they were going to get plane tickets to come home. And Hank Tauber, who is from Park City, played a big role in starting to bring that together uh, in the uh, in the '70s, in the late '70s, and and then that period in the early '80s, it was really quite good. It was good for the the Nordic side, and it was good for the Alpine side. Then it kind of fell apart again in in the mid '80s. But you've got to have a strong organization. Uh, that organization's got to find the resources to support the goals, and it has to have really clear and distinct goals. And and we really had that in in the era under Bill Marolt. It was quite remarkable. We knew exactly where we were headed. We were able to find the resources to support that, and we got there. And we had some some great great athletic success across all sports. So uh, speak a little bit to kind of your own perseverance there, because you kind of go through some rough times with the ski, mm-hmm. right? You talk about it with the athletes, but for you yourself, I mean, that's got to be frustrating when, uh, I mean, you can't ski the runs for people, right? <laughs> but yeah. you have to write the stories and, and create some of that PR, and that's got to be difficult when, you know, uh, it, everyone's having a rough time. It, it kind of emanates, right? Well, you, you look on the bright side. And I know that when I started, I also, I look back to where I was in the 80s. And boy, I, I'd been in PR for 15 or 20 years. And I thought I knew what I was doing. But I look back now, and I, I really didn't know what I, what I later came to know. But, you know, th- this, this was kind of a sad time. I and mean, we, we would take a 30, 30th place finish and say, this is 10 places better than last week. And that was all we really had to work on. But what I learned over time is that the story is not just about results. It's about the personalities and it's about the lifestyle. And the reason that people in particular gravitate so much to skiing and snowboarding, it's not just the athletic success, it's the lifestyle it represents. And that's the characteristic that the athletes bring. And you, you don't necessarily always have to win to carry that storyline. So as time went on, we started to tell not just the story of the results, but the story of the sport and the story story of the lifestyle. That's what people really want to connect to. Sure. Absolutely. You've done such a great job uh, bringing that to life, not only then, but now you have your uh, Behind the Gold. Mm -hmm. There are some uh, excellent stories on there. I was reading one uh, that you had up on the coach. Yeah. I really uh, coach Biatti. Yep, Biatti. I yeah. thought that was a thought that was a great uh, great article. There's some really good reads for those people out there behind the gold.com. There's some truly great great writing. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, Bob Biatti was a, a pretty influential person for me. For those who don't know Bob, he was really the first coach of the U.S. ski team going back into the 60s. And he was a great promoter. He went on to have a long career with ESPN and ABC. Uh, he and uh, Frank Gifford are the ones who called that famous 1976 run of Franz Klammer winning the downhill in Innsbruck at the Olympics. Uh, but, but Bob was another guy that was really, really driven by results. He understood the power of the media. Media. He understood the lifestyle story of the sport, and he really did a lot to popularize skiing in America in the in the 60s. The medals that were won by Billy Kidd and Jimmy Huga in the last day of the Olympics in 
1964 in Innsbruck, uh, just really spoke volumes to what Bob was trying to do. I, I, re I remember, I mean, I knew Bob, I'd worked with him. Actually, I worked with him back in Wisconsin when I was at the Lumberjack World Championships and he was a commentator there. So we'd met there. But before I could take the PR job at the ski team, Howard Peterson said to me, you have to call Bob Beatty and you have to convince him that you're the right man from the job. I mean, I was scared to death. And, and I, I remember going into uh, the Antlers Hotel in Colorado Springs, where we were at the time, and going over to a phone in the corner. And I'm sure I was shaken like a leaf. And I called Bob Beatty at his home. And, you know, he, he was easy to deal with, but I was scared to death to make that call. But we struck up a relationship that day. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say we continued that until he passed away about a year and a half ago. Yeah, it's a great, for, like I said, for those out there, behindthegold.com, it is a good, uh, Bobby Eddy, it's definitely a good, a good story, and it's not yeah. super well-known, and that's, you know, what do you, what do you think it is about, uh, I would say, compared to some other sports, at least in the U.S., you know, I know skiing's a little bit smaller, but I feel like uh, with most of the athletes coming up that are involved in, whether it's moguls or alpine, nordic, uh, aerials, cross-country, they're not they don't know their history that well. I was really amazing to me because I'm like a total history nerd when it comes to a lot of those skiing things. And I'll have these conversations and they won't even be able to know who podiumed from the U.S. in like the last Olympics. It's well, how do you, it's like four years you know, ago. Do you not know that? You know, it's, it's tough. I mean, I'm a, I'm a devotee to history. So I know that I am a little bit unique, but it is, it is, it is frustrating uh, you know, when people don't know the history of their sport, if you've ever been in, uh, and I know you have Bobby, but for, for those who haven't been in the center of excellence here in park city, the training center for us ski and snowboard, uh, along the, or up above on the walls are photographs of every single Olympic medalist going back to, uh, the very first games in 1924, uh, every single ski or snowboard medalist. And the objective of Bill Marolt in that was to, perpetuate this history and get the athletes to look up there and, you know, see that image of uh, Phil Mayer or Steve Mayer or Bill Johnson or whoever it might be, Donna Weinbrecht, and, and ask themselves, who is that person and what did they do? It's pretty important. Uh, I have this saying that uh, history is the roadmap to the future. You can't, you can't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. And that is really important. So every chance I get, I, I try to integrate that. But I also realize that, uh, you know, if I'm talking to an 18 or 20 year old, they're probably not going to know Billy Kidd and Jimmy Huga from the 60s. So would you, would you challenge, because this is one of, one of my thoughts would be to kind of uh, with Alpine programs or freestyle programs or skiing programs across the country, like, I mean, I think uh, personally it would be a, good thought to maybe do a little bit of a, a history class once a month bring the parents in whatever your discipline is hey let's talk because you know one of the interesting things when I've, I've been training in Europe and gone to see uh, Kitzbühel and the Hong Kong Ramen I mean yeah. I have those whole walking yeah. path and like the hollow grounds yeah. and you're learning about Franz Klammer and all just these these winners you know you feel like all right this is this is the Super Bowl of skiing right and you yeah. get to see all these winners and it's just so amazing and it makes you appreciate the sport that much more because it is uh, so difficult and so it takes takes a unique person to do it. 
Yeah, it 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 uh, it really does. I mean, you've given a great example. The Hanencom does a masterful job of of uh, uh, remembering those past champions. If if anyone is skied up at Snow Basin, Snow Basin does the same thing. They they also have uh, past Olympic champions uh, recorded on on their gondola. And actually, it was really funny. Uh, I I got on. Uh, Peekaboo Street has a gondola up there. Uh, uh, commemorating her Olympic medal in 19, uh, her gold medal in 1998. And I was actually on the phone with her and I got on the gondola. I said, oh my God, Peek, look at this. I'm on your <laughs> gondola today. And and the Hanukkah does that too. Darren Rawls, uh, who won the Hanukkah uh, in uh, uh, 2003, I believe, uh, he has a gondola car. And, you know, for him, it's a pretty big deal to know that people are riding up that car in Austria and they see his name and the American flag. That's a big deal to him. Absolutely. First, uh, first American to do it. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So actually I have to qualify that he's the second American to do that. And this is the Bob Beatty in me because Beatty always said, don't forget Buddy Werner and Buddy Werner won the Honda in 1959. And the only other winner, uh, Chuck Ferries won the, uh, won the, uh, slalom in i think 1963 maybe but buddy werner and darren rawls the only two americans to win the hanencom downhill Bodie okay. miller Bodie came close but he didn't quite do it but uh Bodie won it in john slalom right Bodie no, won uh sure. Bodie's won the slalom there slalom. Uh, okay Bodie won. Uh, i think he's won the slalom uh but he came oh so close uh a few times yeah, in the yeah. downhill but never never did it i i remember uh you know, the Hanukkah, for people that don't know, it's the Super Bowl of sport. It's the biggest Absolutely. deal. And I remember talking to Tommy Mo once, and this was before the 1994 medals that he won in Lillehammer. And I asked him, what's the most important thing that you can win as a downhill? And he said, oh, the winning the Hanukkah. But then once he won that gold medal in the Olympics, man, that was a pretty big deal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm assuming you've seen, but uh, for those out there that haven't, there's a great documentary uh, not only on downhill skiing but on the uh, Hanukkah uh, it's called Strife one half yeah. wide that uh, Red Bull put together it's an awesome awesome documentary and gives you a good good history of the race and there's definitely some spectacular crashes on there yeah that's a that's a good film and people should watch that uh, you know another one uh, that touches on the Hanukkah is Downhill Racer with Robert Redford Bobby have you seen that one uh, I have only seen bits and pieces of it but I know it yeah Robert Redford I mean it was, uh, it's from, I think, 1969, but my uh, dear friend, Joe J. Jalbert, who's a film producer, uh, he was a college student and he worked on that film. And what's interesting about Joe J. is he looks just like Robert Redford and they noticed that, plus he was a ski racer. Mm -hmm. So he did all of the skiing stand-ins for Redford in that. And Joe J. and I have had a lot of fun over the years with that film and, you know, going to his house and watching some of the trailers and the outtakes, but that still is a classic film about ski racing. And I encourage you to go find it. It's surely available on some live stream tonight. I will definitely, uh, I'll write that down to finish it because I've never finished downhill racer. So I'm writing that down. Now, what was your first memory uh, as being a part of the, of the ski team and you're going through the Olympics? What is that? Is, is it different? different perspective kind of now you're you're a part of that of that group and the stories almost mean a little bit more because you're there to write about them yeah you know i think i'm going to start that the year before year or two before the olympics so my first olympics with the ski team was 1992 and at that time i'd been in the role for 
four years. So I had a little bit of knowledge. We also had started to have some results. But that very first year, 1988-89, I felt I had to go learn some of these sports. So I went over and I did. This is so typical of me. I did this really condensed, maybe it was a week to 10-day trip, and I saw everything. I mean, totally yep. everything. And I remember going over to a women's race in Teen France and uh, the uh, uh, Pam Fletcher, who was a great downhiller at the time and has been a lifelong friend now, she was injured. So she took me aside. We sat in the bleachers together during the training and she helped introduce me to alpine ski racing and helped me to learn the, the nuances. Uh, similarly, I went over to... Uh, uh, Adelboden for the giant slalom and slalom for the men. And Tiger Shaw, now the president and CEO, was on the team at that time. And, you know, the women's team was one thing, but the men's team, that was really tough to break into that click. And I was just this total outsider there. And Tiger, uh, to this day, I thank him. He took me under his wing, helped me through that weekend, helped me understand, you know, took away some of the fear for me. And that was a, a really important element. And then that same weekend, I, uh, I went to a ski jump, or that same week, I went to a ski jump in uh, Liberich in the Czech Republic. And I had actually been there one other time uh, wearing my cross-country hat. So I had a little bit of an idea of what was going on. Mm -hmm. And, and then, again, this is typical me. I flew over uh, into, uh, must have been into Zurich. I picked up one of our Subarus from our dealer there. And I drove immediately to this ski jump, probably eight, 10 hours away in the, in the Czech Republic. Um, I remember having a flat tire on the way there. And then I remember I decided to stop in Prague and I'm driving in downtown Prague and there's this big demonstration. This was a really difficult time in world politics. And all of a sudden I found myself in uh, St. Venceslas place with this US ski team Subaru surrounded by demonstrators, police, military, and they just said, you got to get out of here. And they, they, <laughs> they, they helped me get out. Um, there's stories like that. The next day I was driving through the night to get to uh, Kitzbühel for the uh, slalom. Mm -hmm. And I'm driving by this road sign and it said, right Winkel, 15 kilometers. And I started to think to myself, I think there's a Nordic combined world cup there today. So I just hung a right, went to this World Cup, no credential, no anything, went in and found the team. They took me under their wing, and I got to see a World Cup Nordic combined event. So it was just one of these crazy, crazy trips. But I look back on it as the best introduction I could possibly have done for myself to the whole world of ski racing. Now, uh, before you were talking about classic you, speak, speak a little bit to that kind of in your personality, because, I mean, I think that speaks to your hard work, your, your dedication, and, and maybe a little bit uh, early on of like want, wanting, right? Wanting to understand, wanting yeah. to be able to write a better story. Yeah, I mean, I'm inquisitive by nature. I'm adventurous by nature. I also am pretty shy by nature. Uh, so I'm usually not the one that wants to be the first in, although I've kind of gotten past that now because I have enough life experiences. But, you know, early on in my career, I mean, I was really daunted. I mean, it was hard for me to talk to star athletes. It was hard for me to talk to the big journalist. Uh, boy, that guy's from the New York Times. He's not going to want to talk to me. So it took me a long time to, to get over that. But I think ultimately my, my sense of adventure, my super hard work ethic, uh, and 
you know, I looked to my dad a lot. My dad, my dad had a great personality, was always really engaging with everybody around him. When I was a kid, I, I really had a hard time with that. And, and even today, my wife is certainly more outgoing than me in that regard. But I've learned over time that people are people. It doesn't matter where they are in any kind of a strata somebody might be putting on them. They're just people. And yeah. they're interested in your story. Um, I, I, I like to mentor people and tell them the chairlift is an amazing place for you to network. Now, it used to be easier when chairlift rides were eight to 10 minutes. Now they're three to four minutes. So <laughs> you don't have as much time. You can't really form a relationship. But I tell when I do a media training for, for rookies, I tell them, talk to the guy on the chairlift with you. Talk to the woman next to you in an airplane seat. These are people who they just want to know your story. They would love to hear your story and then understand what your story is. Your story is your name, where you're from, what you like to do, what you've accomplished. Everybody's going to want to hear your story. So don't be bashful about talking to that guy or woman next to you on the chairlift or an airplane. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really a great uh, piece of advice or kind of approach for people out there, you know, uh, to try and, to try and succeed a little bit, maybe take a little bit of that, of that risk and, yeah. With everything that's going on now, people don't really want to be, I would say, as friendly most of the time <laughs> these days. It's face mask on and six feet away. But to try and, you know, get a little bit out of that comfort zone, it sounds like. Well, you know, you bring up a really good point here, Bobby. And I really wonder how we'll come out of this. I mean, I was going to see if I had a face mask in my pocket. But, you know, <laughs> so we're, we're so accustomed now. That this is this is this is the way that we are, yeah. and it takes the personality away. You know, I I went out on the last two days. The resorts were open here in Park City. It was a Friday and Saturday, and on Friday I went over to Canyons. On Saturday I went to Deer Valley. I did not have a lot of fun. You know, they had already implemented these distancing measures, and you know, my joy is going out as an individual skier, going on a chairlift, and see who I meet. You couldn't meet people. People were shying away from you. There was a fear factor, and it wasn't fun. Um, and, and when it all closed down that Saturday night, you know, I wasn't all that sad about that because I said, you know, this is not going to be enjoyable skiing this way. See, skiing is a social activity Absolutely. and we need to engage in it that way. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully we can get back to some sort of that somewhat soon. Hopefully, uh, this winter or next winter or before the next winter Olympics, at least I would like to get, I would like to get back to it. Well, it, it is interesting to see now who's opening up or who's trying to open up. And, you know, I, I know that Dave Fields at Snowbird would really love to open up a little bit. I don't know if that will happen or not. It looks like Timberline is going to open up on Mount Hood. Uh, there was an area down uh, uh, near Los Angeles that opened up. So I think we'll see a few openings. Uh, and that's encouraging. But um mainly we've got to keep our focus on how do we get ready for next winter and how do we, you know, get past this thing and be skiing come next winter. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, part of it, I would say uh, there definitely is that aspect, I guess, of, of younger generation uh, rather than sunscreen. They already wear the neck cater and the face mask. So you exactly. When you're on the chair, right? Well, I think, I think, you know, you probably did this. I know I did on those days is I would take selfies on the chairlift with the, uh, the face mask, the goggles and everything. And I said, Hey, no concerns here. <laughs> no concerns at all. So now, you go, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, 1994 and then Tommy Moe, because that was a big, that was a big highlight. I mean, 
uh, especially in the sport, to to get that gold right for him. Yeah. And just not not only that for U.S. skiing. I mean, for me, I re- I remember obviously I was in freestyle moguls. I remember Nelson Carmichael getting that medal in in '92, um, and then you had Donna in '92 yeah. um, as well. Liz '94. But I mean, yeah. for, for the U.S., I mean, down or uh, downhill is such a big sport, and for Tommy Mo to to get that and and just create uh, such great publicity and everything else for the ski team it had to be uh, fun to write about yeah it, we had a lot of fun with that uh, there's a great story that came out of those games so there was a sports illustrated writer we didn't work with him that frequently his name was Ed Swift he went by the uh, a byline EM Swift and he wrote this just horrible piece about the Alpine team a week before the games. And he called us the lead-footed snowplow brigade. I mean, it was horrible. And, and it was unwarranted because while we hadn't really been tracking as any kind of a powerhouse, the makings were there. It wasn't a big surprise that Tommy Moe did well there. I think the depth of what we did was a bit of a surprise. We won uh, two, gold medals in, uh, two gold medals in speed events and two silver medals in speed events. That was pretty unheard of. But to come out on the opening day of the games and have the lead-footed snowplow brigade win the gold medal in the premier event, the downhill, we had a blast taking it to Ed Swift. We filled his inbox. We kept haranguing him. Uh, and and I, I didn't feel the least bit sorry for him because it just wasn't a great story. And from, from me as a PR person, you know, I, I always look for the opportunities. And the opportunity for us came with another Sports Illustrated writer, William Oscar Johnson. Mm-hmm. And William Oscar was a great writer and he was a friend. And as soon as Tommy won that medal, I went to him knowing he was on deadline. Tommy won on a Saturday and Sports Illustrated closed on Sunday. Knowing he was on a deadline, I said, listen, uh, I'm going to get you in the car with Tommy to go to the medal ceremony. And that's what created that cover story. And, and it, it, it just catapulted Tommy Moe. It was a great uh, piece of publicity for our U.S. ski team. And you know, I feel pretty proud of that. And William Oscar and I did a lot of great stories together. And here's a little trivia point for you. Um, Bobby, you know Tess Johnson from uh, Vail. Yes. That's his grand- granddaughter. And uh, her, her father was, was his son. And uh, you know, I've made that connection with Tess and her family. And he was just an amazing journalist who always did a great job for us. I had met him at Telemark some years before. He had done a story on a cross-country World Cup race we had there in 1978. So I had come in with that contact already that I'd really had for almost 20 years. That's awesome. Yeah, no, that's an excellent. It was such a such a highlight. I remember um, going through and, and I mean, I, I think I'm pretty sure my brother had like a, there was like a Tommy Mo video game <laughs> on Super Nintendo. Yeah. I remember was, that. I mean, it was <laughs> crazy. Yeah, it, it was a, it was a crazy time. And, you know, Peekaboo won the silver medal there in the downhill. By the way, the skis that she won that silver medal on in the downhill in 94, same skis she won silver in the Super G four years later. A uh, little trivia point that people don't know. And let's not forget Diane Roth, who started number one in the women's Super G totally out of the blue, and she won the gold medal. That was, that was one of the tensest 
periods of time because she was an unexpected leader and almost never does the first person down the course win the race. And I remember that we were not able to really celebrate that one until after the 36th starter. Uh, but that was an amazing uh, display. Tommy Moe went on to win the uh, silver and the Super G as well. So speak a little bit to those moments because you've kind of seen athletes at some of their most vulnerable, right? Like they, mm -hmm. they come across the finish area and maybe they don't get the result that they wanted to. And you know the process and the arduous journey and hard work and all that it takes. And then once every four years, the, that spotlight, I mean, usually that's, that's most of everyone's goals. That spotlight is to, you know, win an Olympic medal or win the Olympics, right? Get that gold. And, and what, is, what is it like to, I mean, I guess let's, let's first speak to the lows because uh, everyone hates to talk about failure, but I think it's something very important to talk about because I think it breeds more success. Those losses really create that opportunity and that fuel for you to achieve more and then talk a little bit to the successes. I never handled the athletes well when they didn't do well, I never figured that out. I never understood what to say. You know, they're all going to look back and say failure is an important part of success. But in that moment when you haven't gotten the job done, there, there's nothing, I don't think there's anything that you can say. I mean, I, I, I don't have a lot of memories of those. I just know that it was awkward for me when that happened. But I do remember Jeremy Bloom in uh, uh, 2006. And you know, as you know, Jeremy had been a world champion. He had had an amazing career, but he had a lot of stuff going on. He had a lot of distractions. Uh, you know, he had, he had college and, and, and different things that he was trying to do. And I think he finished eighth in the Olympics in uh, sixth. Uh, sixth. Thank you. So, <laughs> so thank you. Uh, so he finishes six, you know, I mean, it's a good finish, but it's not a medal. And I think a medal is probably a stretch for him that day, but he didn't have his best run. Mm -hmm. uh, you could look at, uh, you know, many other examples like that, but you know, I remember talking to him and, and, you know, I, I, I didn't really know what is the right thing to say. Um, so that was always hard for me. And it, and it still is hard. Uh, I think on the, on the success side, it's, you know, my, my modus in those occasions for the most part was I am not there to celebrate. I am there to tell the story. So for the most part, yeah. I was the calm, this is what you're going to do. Here's a high five for you, but let's get to work because this is where my job starts. This is where we tell your story. So I tended to be the really down to earth one. An exception to that was what ultimately became the answer, what's your favorite Olympic moment? And I didn't have an answer to that until a couple of years ago when Keegan Randall and Jesse Diggins won that gold medal. And I still get emotional about it. Mm -hmm. There was, because in my career, I go back to the beginning. I go back to before they were born and what the sport had been through and what they represented to the sport. And to be literally, I, I was five feet from Jesse when she crossed the finish line. That one I celebrated. Fortunately, I had somebody else working for me to do the work part of the job, but that one I celebrated. But for the most part, most of those medals, I, I thought functionally, I thought, what do I do next? How do I capitalize on this? How do I keep the athlete focused and keep them a little bit moderated so that they can tell their story? I, uh, and your dad can, can tell you about this, uh, this story too. I created a program called Managing Victory. 
Okay. And I, I looked at the 94 Olympics and we had amazing success there. And we did a great job at telling our story on the ground in Lillehammer. We had a great coverage with Sports Illustrated, with CBS. But when those Olympics were over, we vaporized. We did not tell our story after the games and we did not capitalize for those athletes. So I created this program called Managing Victory. And the premise of this program was that when you win an Olympic medal, it's such a big thing that it needs to take precedence over everything else. And I went to the coaches in the lead up to Nagano and I said, if you have an athlete who wins the medal, here's what we're going to do for media after the games. And maybe we'll even ask you to skip a World Cup the next weekend. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of heresy to say that. Yeah. But we get into the games and Johnny Mosley wins his uh, – uh, wins his gold medal and Jeff Good, his coach comes to me and says, okay, when does the managing victory tour begin? And I said, oh, okay, yeah, let's do this. And, you know, we did a lot for those athletes. I remember, uh, you know, getting Johnny on Letterman and a bunch of other shows. And I remember it's crazy taking to bring that up because I remember uh, being an eight-year-old kid on my couch, jumping up and down with American yeah. flags. And that really propelled my career. Oh, yeah. Watching him on Letterman with like the big pieces of toast or bread, yeah. whatever, and that whole. So it's, it's very interesting to hear you talk about the, the managing victory. Then you probably know he almost killed himself on that jump. <laughs> well, no. That, that jump was so sketch. Should <laughs> never have done that. We can say this now 22 years later, but probably should never have done that. But it was pretty sketch. And uh, we, had, we had a lot of fun with that. But we, we told the story of those athletes in a, in, a, in a better way. And I look at Johnny. I don't think there's anybody who has kept his Olympic buzz going longer than Johnny Mosley. And he's kept himself relevant, and he's still basking in the glory of, of, of that time. I remember that fall, we were doing a, a, a media tour with Johnny in San Francisco, and we were doing a morning show remote at some little coffee shop restaurant down on one of the piers. and. This was the whole the time of the O.J. Simpson thing, mm -hmm. and Cato Kalin was the proverbial pool boy who was involved in the uh, O.J. case, and Cato had become a real celebrity. Well, Cato was on right before Johnny, and I told Johnny that, you know, just kind of matter-of-factly, and Johnny says, oh, Cato and I, we're buds. We met at a party at the Playboy Mansion this summer, so they, uh, you know, kind of <laughs> mugged it up a little bit, and that was, that was a lot of fun. Uh, Johnny, Johnny was a blast to, to work with. Now, another one you've kind of uh, talked about as one of your kind of favorite highlights is, is seeing Sean White's uh, redemption, right? Yeah. And, uh, coming back and having some failures that we've talked about and then ultimately reaching that gold again. Yeah, Sean's an amazing individual. And my first connection with Sean was when he was like 12 or 13 years old. A lot of people don't know this, but he almost made the Olympics in Salt Lake City. He was actually the would have been the fourth person on that team. But on the last run of the last qualifier at Breckenridge, JJ Thomas, kind of a local hero, mm -hmm. came down and stole the show and he beat Sean out of a spot by literally, I don't know, hundreds of a point. It was so close. Mm -hmm. And we kind of thought it would have been cool for Sean to go to those Olympics, but JJ took the spot. Ironically, JJ came back and was his coach for the comeback and the gold medal in, in Pyeongchang. But you know, uh, Sean was who he was, and he was a lifestyle celebrity. Uh, some people might like the way he managed his career. Some might not. Mm -hmm. uh, but he, 
he had surrounded himself with people over time that really put him in a place that a lot of us didn't feel was really Sean. And that reached its, its pinnacle in Sochi in 2014, where he, he lost the gold medal. And, you know, I've looked at that day and it was a, it was a bad weather day and he didn't compensate for the weather. David Wise and free ski, he compensated for the weather. He did a lower profile uh, run and right. he won the gold medal and Sean kind of went for the gusto and it, it wasn't a gusto kind of day and he hammered in and he, he almost I mean, he, he got banged up and he he had was going to try to do the double with slope style and half pipe which was would have been great if you could do it but it was sure. a lot to ask and he he bailed on the slope style I mean it's just a lot of things that went really wrong for him and I felt sorry for him and I felt that he didn't really have good direction and, and good leadership and and the image that he was putting forward then, you know, was one that I, I didn't think was really who he was at, at his core. And I also look back and I don't think that those of us around him, myself included, that we handled that very well with him. We didn't give him the leadership that we needed to. So when he kind of jettisoned that world around him and he put together a new team leading into Pyeongchang and he came in very humble and he just dominated and he yep. had to come back on that final run. And I tell you, being there at the bottom and watching what he did to win that gold medal and then to break down in tears in the finish. I mean, that's what the Olympics are about. And that's what that comeback was about. And, and I, I just loved seeing that, that he could set Sochi behind and he did that. He did that himself and he won that gold medal. Yeah. No, it was, uh, I remember being at like a dinner party or something like that, watching it, watching it live. And it was just one of those impressive to see him kind of come back and, and get that redemption mm -hmm. was extremely impressive. I mean, he yeah. absolutely, absolutely killed it. So let's go back just, just a little bit towards, uh, 2010, because we talked uh, a little bit about Bill kind of building that that new culture and uh, creating that slogan best in the world this is what we're gonna be this is what we're gonna do and then it kind of starts to culminate in 2010 yeah you know the the best in the world journey was really quite fascinating and I was in the room at canyons uh, at the uh, the Grand Summit in 1997 where we spent two or three days as a management team and we crafted that vision none of us knew what it meant and we just kind of went about our day-to-day -day work and trying to figure it out along the way. Nagano Olympics was pretty good, but Bill just kept driving this. He just kept driving it. And we had a pretty big speed bump along the way, and that came in 2006. We had won 10 medals in Salt Lake City, which was most we'd ever won. It was a great Olympics for us. Uh, we went to Torino in 2006, and, and this was something that I wish we wouldn't have done, but we did. Uh, we decided to brand around best in the world. I mean, it's one thing for it to be your vision, but yeah. when you start putting it on hats and banners, yep. that's a different thing. I mean, there's a difference between a marketing brand and a vision. Yep. And we got those mixed up and we went in, I think, very arrogant in 2006. We still won 10 medals, which was good, but we were thinking we would win 15 or more. That right. was never going to happen. And we had a lot of dissent from the athletes. We had dissent from um, athletes like Bodie and Julia Mancuso. I mean, they were very, very upset. Bodie was, was really off the charts there. And, and we led him to that. We didn't serve him properly. The success of those games came with uh, Ted Liggett and Julia Mancuso, which, uh, with a phenomenal performance. Um, it was where Speedy 
almost won his medal in aerials, but he didn't. Uh, Toby Dawson came through with a medal. We did really well in snowboard, but we, we, we didn't do a good job in leadership there. And we, we put that brand message ahead of uh, the vision, and that was a mistake. We got rid of that going into 2010. So we went in with the vision, and there was no arrogance. We went up to Vancouver. We knew we were ready. But I remember going there, and there was never on my mind did I calculate out what this could mean. But we go in there on day one, and Hannah Carney wins the gold, which we had kind of expected she would. Yeah. We didn't expect Shannon Barkey to win the bronze. Mm-hmm. So that was, a, that was a bonus. And then we, uh, uh, we, we picked up a, a medal the next day in men's moguls with Brian Wilson. And then, then uh, uh, the medal started coming from snowboarding. And all of a sudden, we're three, four days into the games, and we've got eight, ten medals. And it was at that point that I realized this is what Bill Merolt was talking about. Yeah. We're, we could do this. Mm-hmm. And at, from that point forward, our focus just changed. I mean, we, we all grew up in those first few days. I mean, the, the, the Hannah Carney medal, and I know you had her on the, 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 the podcast. Yep. Hannah's, Hannah's medal, that was great. That kind of felt like, you know, medals feel. But yep. after that, when we started to figure out the magnitude of this and what momentum is about, it was a whole different perspective. We all had a different outlook on what this was all about. And we got to that number of 21. And if I, I'm, I'm just kind of taking a guess at this, but I'm thinking that Speedy's uh, silver medal in aerials might've been that one that put us over the top. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, that was a really fun Olympics to, to watch. I mean, it's nice for people uh, here at least to be able to watch it yeah. on time zones too. And I mean, it was, the Under Armour did such a good uh, job, at least with the, mo- I mean, I remember the mobile outfits quite well with the stars and stripes and all that. And <laughs> those were amazing. They did a really good job. Those were, those yeah. were great. And remember too, we won four medals in Nordic combined. You yeah. know, Johnny Splane got a couple, Billy uh, DeMond got a gold. We got the, the, the team event uh, uh, silver. Uh, that was a pretty, pretty remarkable games all around. So uh, you've kind of gone through such growth and you spent so much time with, with the ski team and being in the, the ski industry. What was it like to be uh, nominated and named into the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame? Well, that, that, that was, I mean, that was, a, that was an amazing honor. And I, uh, I knew I'd actually, it was a little bit awkward for me because I, I, I was actually involved with the hall, I was on the board, and uh, I knew that I'd been nominated, but I never really thought, well, this is really going to happen. So it was, uh, it was, it was quite an, uh, an amazing honor. And, you know, everybody says this, and I think it's true that no one sets out in their career to win an honor. That just doesn't happen. Uh, it, it is just something that all of a sudden it's there. As much as the Hall of Fame means to me, and, and that was the one that, uh, that really caught people's attention, probably the award that really means the most to me is an award I got from the U.S. Olympic Committee in the spring of 2018. Uh, it's called the Building Dreams Award. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of funny because the Building Dreams Award is about, it's, it's usually given to coaches or others who have done things to build the dreams of American athletes. And I had been passionately engaged in a nomination for that award. I had nominated one of our cross country coaches and I had done everything you do to get someone to be selected for an award. I had all of my insiders lined out. 
I had the kick-ass bio written. I had done everything to get Matt Whitcomb this Building Dreams Award. He was such a perfect candidate. And then all of a sudden I get this call that I'm getting the Building Dreams Award. My first thing I said, no, but that's Matt Whitcomb's award. You know, so it was, it was an honor. But the coolest part of it was they, they asked me, who, who would you like to introduce you? And man, I really thought about that a long time. And, and I looked at the athletes who were coming and I said, you know, Kelly Clark, I'd like Kelly Clark to do that. And it was hard to reach Kelly. She was <clears throat> off the grid uh, mm -hmm. after the Olympics. And it had been a disappointment to her that she finished fourth. But Kelly has been someone who I've always admired. I've been there for every one of her medals. I've been there for the two that she didn't win. And she just meant a lot to me. Mm -hmm. So she was the one who got the task. She graciously accepted. And she just said the most incredible things uh, that, that, that meant so much to me that, hey, all of this work that I've been doing, you know, it was for the right reasons. So that was probably my biggest career memory was that honor in Washington, D.C. in the spring of 2018. That's awesome. That's awesome that you were able to get someone to, to come back and, and introduct you into yeah. such a great way. That's really, really cool. That's special. I mean, it's amazing such a such a career and so many different athletes so many different stories I mean, we're gonna to have to have you come back on the podcast again <laughs> we can do round number two and talk about uh talk about a few more i think right <laughs> well i'd love to maybe i'll come back and we'll just talk about athletes i, don't, I generally don't talk about myself uh you know one of the things you know if, you, if you're looking for uh you know things that really helped with success um i have never been motivated to be anything more than what i was and the thing that's given me the the greatest pleasure and sense of accomplishment is that I have helped others. And I look back to the time that I worked for Tony Wise at Telemark and how I helped him be successful. My right. time at the team, I've helped athletes be successful. And even in my work now as a communications consultant, I like making other people successful. Uh, it's not about me. It's about what I can do to help other people. So uh, I do think that that's something that's really helped me through because I've never been motivated to get that other job. I like the job I have and I'm going to be the best I can be at it. That's uh, it speaks to that uh, authenticity you were talking about earlier. And yes, I guess so. <laughs> speaks to the uh, one of one of your other articles on behind the gold that uh, athletes tell the story. Yeah, I mean that's what the story's about, and I you know I learned this early on, but it, again it was Bill Marolt that really drove it to me, and Bob Biatti. He said it's about the athletes. I, I was I was talking to Hervig Dempster the other day, and Hervig is now an executive with Powder Corp, and he's mm -hmm. really the vision behind the Killington uh, Alpine World Cup, which has attracted thirty thousand spectators every year. Yep. And I said, what what motivates you? How, uh, what has motivated you through your career? And he said, it's fairly simple. It's just about the athletes. And I think that's why all of us work in sport. We work on behalf of the athletes. And, and when, when all of a sudden, if you're not working on behalf of the athletes, you ought to get out of sport because that's what it's all about. It's about sure. the athletes. Now, uh, one thing I was, I was kind of curious about when you're going through and you've seen such growth over your time, right? Uh, starting out mm -hmm. like using like a typewriter to write up your stories. And then <laughs> in the end, it's the growth oh, I, of social media, right? <laughs> yeah. I've seen technology. We, uh, yeah, we, uh, uh, typewriters, uh, then they became electric typewriters and, uh, 
uh, fax machines, but before fax machines, there were telex machines. So I've seen it all. And now, you know, the whole thing is done on one of these. Right there. So, so what habits did you kind of have to create for yourself to be able to, to get a story done on time? Because there's got to be those time periods where you're like, ah, I don't really want to get it done. Today. Oh, oh, it's due. I have to really grind. What, what kind of habits did you create to, to help yourself make the deadline? Well, I think one of the things that's helped me here is I've always had an interest in technology. Uh, I was a licensed ham radio operator at the age of 12. Uh, so I'm familiar with electronics. Uh, I, I'm familiar with technology. So I was always the guy searching out that new way to communicate. So I was the one who brought the first fax machine in the telemark. I was the first one who brought a telex machine in. So I've always kind of been a little bit on the, the, the cutting edge of that. I do remember where to get race results if you could get them the next day from europe that was pretty good mm -hmm. um i remember my first trips to europe where you couldn't place a call if you wanted to call home you had to go into the post office put the call order in and sit there and wait for three or four hours that's how you made a phone call overseas mm -hmm. so i always look for ways to circumvent that so as digital photography came along as the internet came along as social media came along phones by the way if you go back to just 2010 olympics mm -hmm. we didn't have smartphones at the 2010 olympics apps were just just barely coming out about that time and uh, some people were using blackberries i think i was probably still using a handspring or uh, maybe i was using an early uh, smartphone but I just follow the technology and always use the technology. I have also though come to the realization that as much as I follow the technology and follow social media, yeah. it is a cultural thing and you need to get other people to do that job well. And I did that in 2014, I hired a digital team at US Ski and Snowboard and that dramatically changed the landscape. So I realize not just the things I can do, but I realize the things I can't do. Kind of realize some of your weaknesses and stuff. Yes. Like. Now, any books at all you would uh, you would recommend lately? I'm trying to while I'm while I'm here in cure, uh, quarantine, I'm uh, trying to get uh, some as as much knowledge as I can gain before I have to go back out. <laughs> I can't read books. Can't read I can't, books? I can't okay. read books. I don't have the patience to read a book cover to cover. I did read one cover to cover though recently, and I can't even remember what it was now. So I have a stack of books next to my bed and I may dabble in them, but I just, I can't make it through books. I also have a list of books I'm going to write, which Ooh. I know will probably not happen, but uh, hopefully some of them will. Well, please, uh, yeah, come back on the next time to promote when you, uh, when you have your book release, because I would definitely <laughs> uh, love, to, love to read it now. Where can uh, people kind of follow along on social media or, uh, or online and, and get some more of uh, Tom Kelly? You know, it's, it's fascinating. <clears throat> the best way to follow me on social media is on LinkedIn. And <laughs> I only recently figured out how to best use LinkedIn. To me in the past, LinkedIn was that thing you did in the airport where you had 10 minutes and you see how many people you could connect with. Uh, but now LinkedIn is where I spend most of my time. I have a Facebook channel. Uh, so you can find me at Tom Kelly Communications on um, uh, LinkedIn. You can find me at, uh, uh, I think I'm T. Kelly on Facebook. And I have three Instagram channels. I have Tom Kelly Olympic, Chef Tom's Kitchen, and Tom Kelly photos. You can follow me at all those places. You like to cook a little bit? 
I love to cook. I absolutely love to cook. And that's something I picked up over time. I didn't used to be that person, but I love to cook now. So follow Chef Tom's Kitchen on Instagram. I think folks will love that. Awesome. I definitely will. Uh, everybody out there, go go follow. And then you can also, uh, you also started a podcast as well, correct? Behind I, have the- a, I have a bunch of them going right now. Uh, so I have a podcast for Ski Utah called Last Chair. So you can follow that 13 episodes uh, this year. Actually, the 13th is going to go up next week. Uh, just started one called Heartbeat. Uh, for U.S. Biathlon that debuted last Friday, and that's clicking right along. Uh, I also do a couple of private podcasts for the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, and I'm also helping produce a new podcast that will launch next week called Return to Sport. Uh, It's a podcast that great coach is doing to help you sports organizers uh, get their kids back on the playing fields. Return to Sport, awesome. Yeah, I think my my fiance might be on that. I don't know. I'll have to, I have to double check with her on that. <laughs> yeah. He's a, uh, I was just down uh, doing a, a, he's doing a video much like you. He's doing a video podcast and okay. we, we're just uh, taping an opening down at campus today. You know, I've become a really big uh, advocate for youth sport and I'm troubled by where things are right now. The kids can't get out on the playing field. So hopefully uh, uh, folks will find a way to get kids back involved in sport before too long safely i agree i definitely agree we need to get them back in sport and we need to get them to learn their history whatever sport and their history history, right well thanks a lot for taking the time tom i really appreciate it truly are the man the myth the legend uh given so much back to this sport and it's been excellent to uh have a conversation with you and i'd love to have you on again well bobby thanks for starting in the arena you're doing a great service to your followers out there and it's an honor to be on with you thanks tom all right we'll see you everybody see ya hope you enjoyed this episode folks thanks a lot please like share and subscribe this is your host bobby carroll signing off